Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Retirement Success in Maine podcast today. I'm Abby Duty, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Ben Smith and Curtis Worcester, the Lucerne Lake and Sebago Lake to my Pleasant Lake. How are you guys doing today? Doing great, Abby. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, so today we're talking about something very near and dear to my heart, um, and I know a lot of fellow Mainers, right? So the concept of a camp. So to many Mainers and people in, you know, all kinds of places, camp is a special place where they go with their families all seasons to enjoy some, you know, quality family time, maybe spend some time unplugged from technology to kind of get away from the everyday life, right? So this can be by a lake, it can be at a mountain, really any setting can have a camp. And so for many generations, these camps have been in families and passing them down can be a big legacy and thing that we want to pass on to, you know, our kids and grandkids. But oftentimes it isn't quite as simple as just passing it down to future generations. So today we have brought on with us an attorney who specializes in this transition of camp properties. Um, so he has provided estate planning to individuals and integrates his business practice with estate planning to help clients develop a succession plan um, for their businesses and other properties and assets. Um, he's a shareholder of Perkins Thompson and formerly a member of the firm's executive committee. He's been selected by his peers to be included in the best lawyers in America 2007 to 2020 in the field of tax law. So please welcome to the show our guest, Tim Benoit. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, So we always start out by talking a little bit about you and so where you came from, kind of your bio. So let's start with where did you grow up? I grew up in Burlington, Vermont on Mm -hmm. a lake called Lake Champlain. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, beautiful spot. It reminds me of Portland, <laughs> or Portland reminds me of it. So I've been lucky to live in two great cities. Now. That's great. Um, so can you talk about a little bit about your path towards becoming an attorney? How did you start, and why did you choose law? Well, I started out to be a teacher. Interesting. Um, and I really wanted to do that, but I also was very interested in pre-law. I have a double major in history and political science, and I found myself attracted to political science and how people get along or don't get along, and what are the mechanisms for resolving issues and doing planning. So that's what attracted me to law, and uh, and that's and I've been on the what we call the transactional side of law. I litigate only if I have to, but I count it as a success if I avoid court, if my clients avoid court. Now, sometimes you can't avoid it, and sometimes mm-hmm. you have to, you know, take the bull by the horns and, and go, go through the process. But it's an expensive, emotionally wrenching process mm-hmm. that uh, people don't fully appreciate until they're in the thick of it and they get large bills. So um, I've trended towards the transactional side, a lot of planning, 
to avoid disputes. Uh, try to I try to see you know where there are tensions and uh, and 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 deal with them. So how did you find Perkins Thompson? Well, I came out of law school and I went to work for an accounting firm, KPMG, and I worked there for four years in their tax department. And my wife would always say to me, yeah, I sent you to law school to be an accountant. <laughs> and so I got some really good experience there. I appreciate what accountants do and I work closely with them regularly. Uh, so after four years... And the other thing I found is you can't go skiing when you're an accountant because it's tax. And I love it. So those two things, I moved to um, Perkins Thompson in 1988 and have been here since. Nice. Um, So can you talk a little bit about Perkins Thompson, kind of their history and what sort of legal services um, are they best known for and are you best known for? So Perkins Thompson was founded in 1871. And, um, around a while. They've been around a while. We've (laughs) historically been a business, uh, firm, business law Mm -hmm. firm. Uh, we tend to represent businesses in all facets of their legal needs. Mm -hmm. Let me just describe a couple of areas. I mean, so I represent a number of companies. Some of them, and a lot of them actually have started from like Guidance Point. I helped <laughs> Guidance Point start. And um, and these companies have grown into successful companies. And um, it's, again, it's a, it's, it's, I enjoy watching the growth of and the success of my clients. Not all of them, you know, go anywhere, but uh, the ones that do, um, uh, it's very enjoyable. So Perkins Thompson's a business law firm. We have practice areas. We have a real estate practice. We we know real estate really deeply, and and actually it helps me in my practice, particularly about what we're the topic today. Yes. Um, we do um, employment law, and uh, we have uh, startup companies. So again, things that uh, deal with uh, businesses primarily. Although I represent a number of individuals in estate planning. Mm-hmm. Um, and the like. Okay. That's great. Um, so you provided kind of the perfect segue into our conversation today about camps, right? And the this concept of camp. Um, so here in Maine, how do we define what a camp is? And what do you think camp means? And what do we do at camp? Well, my... <sighs> I don't think camps are camps anymore. Camps are, <laughs> They're transitioning. They yeah. are expensive lakefront properties. Yes. And um, they weren't always that way. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I I know some families that, you know, have had a camp on Lake Sebago for many generations. And it was, you know, they drive up on a summer afternoon and enjoy the property. But that property right now is worth a couple of million dollars. Yes. And which leads to one of the problems, which is, you know, camps are expensive, not only to buy, they're also expensive to maintain. They're high annual costs like real estate taxes and the like. So, you know, camp is, in my area of law, they're now referred to as legacy properties. Interesting. Hmm quite a transition from the traditional camp that we think of up to camp yeah exactly (laughs) 
And, and Tim, from uh, you know our side is, you know, many times when we sit down with a client and you're discussing the financial plan and assets and and things come up and you because you're trying to tie those assets and the financial resources to those goals, right? And and mm-hmm. sometimes it's well, not just spending my assets over time, but also when I pass, what do I want to do with these assets and where does it go? And which is why I think when it comes to estate planning and things like that, we we call up people like yourself is hey, we we need someone to help uh, kind of drive these sorts of documents. So the concept, and I know you just introduced the idea of a legacy asset, but you know, legacy goals on the other side is, you know, how do I how do I make sure that these these assets go through for future generations? So that comes up a lot around that that asset of a family camp. And as Abby kind of said in the introduction, there's a lot of this emotional feeling here because you know, I all those warm kind of feelings of my family has come here. I have friends from away that you know they all come to Maine in the summer because that's the great destination to be and relax and hang out. All this really warm, fond, emotional things. And they say, that's what I want to give to my kids. And I want to give it to their kids. So this whole idea of uh, preserving the family camp is, is something there. So what is it that you are seeing? I know I described what we see on our end, but what do you see that people are really emotionally attached to? And why is it the camp that kind of does it for them? Well, I think you you hit the nail on the head. It's it's a place for families to gather and, you know, people have, you know, really good memories of, you know, them, themselves, their children, their grandchildren, all enjoying this space. And it is a warm, fuzzy, good emotion. But on the other hand, I also see really negative emotions when things go south. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't work as well. So, but the, I, I want to say one thing about Sometimes, and I find this a lot, the parents have what I call a notion that they kids are going to want to, they're just going to love this camp. They're going to want it. The big change in, I would say, in the last 30, 40 years is families are not, they're all over the country now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is a factor to take into account. And so, you know, it's just hard to get everybody together. Mm-hmm. So the parents might have an unrealistic notion about how this property will uh, work. Um, And Ben, actually, you and I had a client where I met with them and they really wanted to give this lovely property to their kids. And I kept asking them hard questions and encouraged them to talk to their kids. Mm -hmm. And after they talked to their kids, it was clear that the kids didn't want the property. Mm-hmm. So why go through all the hoops, right? Why do all the work? <laughs> well, well right? yeah, exactly. I mean, and so I I do try to identify issues. And in that case, you know, it was a lovely property. But, you know, the both families lived in Maine. The kids and their families lived in Maine. They had other places. They did still gather. Um, but this particular property was not at the same emotional uh, appeal as it was to the parents. Mm. So, you know, I've just got to work my way through the through the fog of that uh, those emotions to really get at what's going to work. Mm. So Tim, I know we just kind of that story you shared, you know, resulted in a, a ingredient if you will that didn't necessarily work for these parents that wanted to leave this camp to their children. Can we just talk about like the flip side is, you know, we hear 
these people have this dream of leaving this camp for generations and generations and just kind of what has to go right in that process. And I'm sure based on the conversation we just had, you know, part of it is the, the intended uh, receivers of the property need to want it. I'm assuming that's ingredient one or one of the ingredients, but can you just kind of talk about the, the process in general and what really has to go right for it to work? What really has to go right is good communication and, you know, sometimes uncomfortable conversations. I'll share a story that basically the mother and father were going to give the can to um, originally to the daughter. And then they changed their mind. They wanted to have it co-owned by brother and Mm. sister. Or actually, I take that back. They wanted it owned by brother. And Mm. daughter basically told them, if you give him that camp, I will sue him. Wow. It was, talk about strong emotions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and But the point of that was the, she communicated to her parents that this was really important. Now, she could have communicated it differently, but you still got the message. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I try to do is just figure out what's important to whom mm. and, um, and also be realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big... Uh, a, a big piece of that is do do people appreciate what it takes to own and maintain, you know, real property on a lake sure, or, or the ocean? Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and Tim, a yeah, follow-up to that is, because I, I know what you just expressed was, hey, here's, you know, let's use that example, is here's the parents communicating to the daughter and the son about maybe what they want to do. And I, I guess what I could see a lot is in what we see with estate planning is sometimes parents change their minds. They have different attitudes about, well, I thought it was going to be this way, but you know, this came up. And for that reason, I don't think that's going to work anymore. Now I want to do something else. So you could also see where there's kind of this fine line of under communicating, which then people are in the dark and they don't know what's going to happen with things. But then you over communicate is maybe I express to the daughter, oh, this is totally yours one day, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is going to be your thing. And she's all, you know, her heart set on it. She's working towards it. And for whatever reason, the parents might change their mind and maybe they over communicate, they communicate uh, that change to somebody else. Right. So couldn't you see where obviously that communication is tough as well to, to kind of migrate or navigate between these dynamics as well? It is. It is. And um, I'm finding or I found that the generation that now is, you know, in their 80s and 90s mm-hmm. grew up in a culture where, you know, you didn't talk about these things. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't tell your kids about these things. You just kind of left it. And, uh, you know, that's the worst extreme. The other is, you know, just constantly talking about it and switching and moving things around. I always counsel my clients to try to determine, um, assess what's important to whom and mm. gauge interest. And so they're asking questions instead of saying, I'm going to give you the camp. And so that tends to help. And the, the client that we worked with that basically they ended up contacting their kids to ask outright, are you interested in this property? So it's a careful balancing and all families are different. And this will really work well in some families and just 
is impossible to work in others. Mm. Um, there are too many problems. And so that's what I have to do to help my clients figure out what they want to do with these assets. So kind of touching on what you just said, the problems that come up with this transition. So let's take an example of somebody that has a camp and definitely wants to pass it down to future generations. So what are some common mistakes that you see in preserving the asset, right? So maybe you know, not maintaining the camp. I don't know. And then what are the biggest errors that people make when they go about trying to start the transition or planning for the transition? So if you leave your camp real estate to say there's three kids, Mm -hmm. it automatically defaults to a property ownership, what we we call tenancy in common, Mm -hmm. which means they all own a one third interest. And that tenancy in common is different from how real estate is owned by a husband and wife typically of a house or something where it's called joint tenancy by right of survivor. So the survivor automatically owns 100% if the other person dies. In the case of the kids with tenancies in common, they own one third, which will pass down to their kids. And so Mm -hmm. if they have two kids, all of a sudden they have a sixth. And so unless you plan for that, you could... Mm -hmm end up with, you know, fractional interests uh, with nobody able to control how the property. So that's the biggest, that's the first thing I look at. And so I typically do not want real estate to be held as tenants in common. The other thing, the other bad thing about tenants in common is you have this right of partition. So two tenants in common own property and they don't get along one of them can sue in court for what's called a right of partition. I want to split the property. Well, if the property is not legally legally, you know, dividable, it then is partitioned by sale. Mm-hmm. So, so there are these legal rights, and they're kind of a blunt instrument. And typically, I encourage people to put real estate into a trust or a limited liability company, which gets rid of that right of partition. But then you've got to kind of have a mechanism within those entities that allow for people to resolve disputes. Mm-hmm. But the way the the real estate is structured is probably the first thing that I look at. And, and a follow-up to that, to, uh, Tim, just to get into that a little bit, in terms of the the partition part. So essentially what you're, what I, what I hear you saying is, you know, you have those three kids and you know, that maybe they're, they're kind of saying, Hey, I want to split it and they really can't split it. So they have to then sell their share. So that is essentially forcing a purchase by one of the the remainders. If they can, if they can't, then it's basically forcing a sale for everybody at that point. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, um, you know, you can't force somebody to buy you out. But okay. you can make their life difficult enough that they will buy you out or sell the property. And that's what the right of partition does. Um, now I'll give you an example where a right of partition I used a right of partition to help my client. So my client was one of five children and this was a property on Moosehead Lake. And, uh, so they're each had a 20% interest. Tennessee in common interest. So my client was able to acquire from three of his siblings their 60%. So he ended up owning 80%. He put that 80% into a limited liability company for future planning, but then kept trying to negotiate with the fifth sibling. And um, this person was uh, passive aggressive at best and just downright nasty at worst. 
So anyway, that person would just say, I want you, you can buy me out for five times what you think it's worth. And so it was, like I said, uh, passive aggressive. So based on our advice, the client initiated a partition action to buy that person out. Now, that was a risky proposition, but it ended up working. So part- right of, so a partition action says this, was, this land was not dividable. So it had to be by sale. Mm. So the fifth sibling who was in Hungary, we had to hire, um, you know, attorneys in, in Hungary to serve that person and do all kinds of crazy stuff, but which we did. And, uh, so we had partition action. So all of a sudden this person's faced with, Oh, I got to do something. So we had an appraisal. We made an offer to that person to buy them out. The other person didn't have an appraisal. So if we went to court, that person had no evidence mm. about the worth of the property. And so it was likely that my client would be, uh, the court would allow my client to buy the other person or order my client to buy the person out, even if it was against what that other person wanted to do because they owned 80%. Um, and they made a reasonably fair offer. So the end result of that was a negotiated settlement. Now, the, the fifth brother got a, a uh, premium uh, on it, and not that much. It was maybe 5%. Mm-hmm. But then my client ended up owning 100%. And so that is now in a limited liability company. Um, and I'm actually working on making gifts at the end of this year and the beginning of next year of membership interests in that to that client's hmm. children. Interesting. That's kind of a, I, I want to explore that a little bit more, a little bit later with you, but I, I want to ask about, and I'll just expand on what Abby asked about the errors people making. And one that I guess I want to just ask your opinion on, it feels like from a legal perspective that there could be times when people are, are putting these sorts of assets into some sort of legal structure that maybe it's it's either too restrictive or maybe too loose on how things work. And mm-hmm. so I, I guess from like a, almost thinking about like the drafting of the constitution type thing of, hey, if I want this to work for next generations, you know, you just described over the last 30, 40 years, hey, especially lakefront properties are really gone up in price. Taxes are are changing. You know, there's attitudes that are changing from people that might inherit these so almost as you're, I think when, when you're going through this process with your clients that, you know, if this is something that might happen, that there is a possibility to keep these properties and assets in place for generations, that you're almost wanting to have a flexibility included, but not to maybe have it be too flexible that it just causes it to go haywire as well. So what, what are your thoughts around that? Because I, I can see where that's a really tough thing to, to accomplish. It is. And first of all, I tell my clients that this type of property will not usually survive more than two or three generations. It just doesn't. Um, Mm -hmm. Too many interests because you've got it owned by siblings and then you have it owned by cousins and then it goes down to, you know. So um, I tell my clients that up front. So um, I say then we have to build in a mechanism to uh, allow one or more of the parties to buy each other out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing I tell them is we want to structure this in a way that does not aggravate relationships, sibling relationships. I mean, this 
because that's easy to do. I mm. can tell you. Yeah. Uh, it, and, and most of the time it's done by um, just doing nothing, not yeah. talking about it or doing anything. Um, so those are two kind of big areas that I see errors arise from. And Tim, I'll kind of uh, uh, say this too. And I know, again, with the work we I, I've seen you do with some of clients as well is I, I think there's always this I have a stated goal of maybe preserving the asset, but I think there's a underrealized appreciation of that by putting an asset in the middle of relationships, sometimes it's going to cause friction between relationships. And they, I think there's maybe people haven't thought about that a lot of that. You know, I don't, I want to also per, keep this asset in a place that also minimizes the, a, a conflict that might kind of up in the future, right? It doesn't mean you can avoid it completely. But right. I don't want to cause people to start fighting either. That's that may be breaking up my family. Well, it, it it does. So the big the big issues are you know families all over the country. So that goes to use of the property. Mm-hmm. You know, are they going to use it? And then the other issue is how are they going to share the expenses? And right. if I never use it and I'm paying you know one fifth, one fourth, one third of the expenses, I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are those are the areas that I explore. Is there, in your opinion, too, in terms of with an asset like this, like a camp, um, whatever it might be, it feels like there almost should be some sort of financial resource, like liquid money, that goes along with that, yeah. in a way, <laughs> be, be, just because, like, hey, in terms of like taxes and things that might come up, if it was more of a self-contained asset as well. Maybe that would help. That's a nice thought. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's my now, error in thinking. Um, <laughs> does does one of the children who lives in California want to see some of their share of the so-called liquid assets go into a, an endowment for a camp they never use? I mean, these are things to think, but your point is a good one. And the, here's how I approach it. I mean, so I analogize it to a condo association. Mm -hmm. You've got to train your children to manage this property. And I I advocate that you um, have an annual meeting, you have an annual budget, you get everybody to buy into it. You say, here's, here's your share. Um, And then some, some of these properties are rented because you, again, you know, the the peop the family doesn't have the means to you know or or some of the um siblings don't have the means to pay their share mm-hmm. so and then you're in the business of renting, and so you've got things to think about so like I said, there's a lot of moving parts um but that's uh that's the way I try to get people to think about it gotcha. And I want to ask a question about, okay, so say, you know, you, you mentioned where you're, you're structuring this asset in an LLC or, or a trust. And one of the things that you, you kind of pointed out was, Hey, when you start going too many generations, it splinters so many ways. It can cause it, it be really, be, uh, really be difficult to continue. Um, so it feels like at some point there is the, there's a appropriate time to end the preservation of the camp. Mm-hmm. That there, there, there's an exit clause almost that should happen there. So, what are the really the steps to uh, to take to really end these structures? And really, I don't want to use maybe the maybe it's a very poor neutral term is to dispose of the camp at that point or liquidate it to the intended heirs. Like, so what what are generally the conditions 
you would need to kind of say, this is the time to end it. And then what do I have to do once that once that decision is made? So what I see, because there's no, you know, epiphany about now's the time to end this. Mm-hmm. What usually happens is one or more of the siblings say, I don't, I mean, yeah, I never get there. I, I don't want to, you got to buy me out. Mm-hmm. And that precipitates the resolution. Gotcha. Now, these LLC, as I said before, well, first of all, I just want to say I favor LLCs over trusts. Trusts have uh, fiduciary obligations woven into them that gives parties uh, some leverage in negotiations. So I avoid those like the plague. And um, limited liabilities companies are are really creatures of contract. So everybody's an adult. You agree. Here's what you got to live with. You don't, I don't owe you a fiduciary duty and vice versa. The question becomes if in that scenario where I don't use it, you buy me out. What do I have there that facilitates that? So I have a, a number of different ways, but the one I seem to be using the most of is what I call put up or shut up, which is you want me to buy you out? Okay, I'll buy you out, but you'll, you're going to take a 25% discount or a 50% discount, yeah. and I'll pay you over time. So, And then if nobody wants to buy that person out, the shut-up part is the property has to be sold. Mm-hmm. So if there are, say, are three kids, one of them says, you two have to buy me out. One of the people who want to stay says, I'll buy you out. And so you end up with a 50% membership interest. Well, I know you don't. <laughs> you end up with a 66 yeah. and two-thirds interest and a one-third interest, mm-hmm. which has its own issues. But <laughs> you, you know, you have a resolution at that point. But if in that same three member situation, if the other two or any one of them doesn't want to buy that person out, the result is it gets sold and the property is split. Hmm. Nobody gets a discount. They just split the proceeds. It seems to be the way that works the best. As long as people go into it with their eyes open, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I can't force you to buy me out at fair market value. I I can force you to buy me out at I get a discount. Mm -hmm. Um, Then, you know. Seems to work. So, Tim, what what I like is, um, and again, for maybe the audience here that might not be used to the kind of the business sense in terms of ownership and shares and things like that, obviously, this is probably a pretty new concept. So I want to ask a little bit more about that real quick on the structure Mm -hmm. of an LLC. So if... So I then, I put my family camp into an LLC and we're creating a share structure, right? Is event maybe right today where me and my spouse own all of those shares today, but, you know, based upon my death or our death, um, then those shares then go to these different places. Is that a function of the will essentially where here's my assets or is it a function of the LLC where, you know, there's like a change of almost like a, like the CEO of the organization upon there's a change of control upon certain actions. So an LLC limited liability company is you think you should think of it more like a partnership as opposed to a corporation. Okay. You know, you got 50% members, mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And so what we usually do is, People engage in gift-giving programs using the $15,000 annual exclusion to avoid having to file gift tax returns. So with three children, and I'm doing this right now, each parent can give each one of them a 
15 um, interest worth 15,000 and you calculate what that percentage is but it's worth 15,000 so you get a real estate broker to give you a, a uh, an appraisal or estimate of value and if you get it in like November you can then make gifts in December for 2020 and then make gifts at the beginning of 2021 using the same appraisal so mom and dad essentially can give away $120,000 worth of value in that scenario, um, $60,000 for each year. Um, and that's using one. And so that leads to a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, when you start giving away things. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the ways we manage lifetime gifts. I do not want a property to go through probate if I can avoid it. Hmm. So um, the LLC interests maybe typically have it their own. The LLC is actually owned by the revocable trusts of mom and dad. And so it avoids probate, it manages itself. Probate, again, provides an opportunity for people to, you know, get a judge involved. And we're trying to avoid that. Hmm. Tim, I want to kind of back up a little bit to what Ben's initial question was about. You know, he talked about sort of ending that preservation of a property. And I want to rewind even further than that and say, I'm at, say I'm coming to see you, you know, say I own a camp and I really want to I have that dream of wanting this camp to stay in my family, whether it's to my kids, then to my grandkids or whoever. Is there a point where, you know, you look at my situation and say it's just not worth it? Like, is that an asset base? So I think about, you know, say my camp's not that nice and it costs a lot Mm -hmm. to upkeep or there's a ton of, you know, repairs I have to do. Is there kind of like an arbitrary number or a way you kind of assess values to say, you know what, Curtis, that's just not a good idea to pass that on to someone? (laughs) Well, even if a camp is physically not that attractive, Mm -hmm. if it's on the water, it has value. Sure. And um, it could be torn down and sold. So it has value. Um, uh, Again, it goes to the communication of talking to your kids. Do they want use this property mm-hmm. and so there's never to me a, I walk away from it or sell it now kind of thing in that instance where I with um, Ben the clients still live there but on their death that property would be sold yeah, and gotcha. uh, the proceeds put in their trust for the benefit of their kids mm-hmm. um, so you talked a little bit earlier um, about how camps have changed right so 40 and 50 years ago a camp was very different than it is today and what's being passed down is very different mm-hmm. um, so have the legal structures changed along with the camps themselves right so the properties are very different now than they were then does the legal structure go along with that well, you didn't have limited liability companies until 1994 in Maine. Okay. <laughs> so that before that, it was pretty much trusts. But okay. as I said before, I, I tend to avoid trusts now because of, you know, fiduciary obligations. Right. If they used to trust, they were thinking ahead. Mm-hmm. Most people just died and the <laughs> yeah. property went through probate. And then within the probate um, process, you have this asset and other assets, and then there has to be a plan of distribution ultimately of those assets. And that can be a negotiation in and of itself. One person saying, I want the camp, I want the money, and then you gotta, you know, mm-hmm. you know, make the sausage. That's what was more typical, I would say, 30, 40 years ago. 
Are you seeing more and more people put their camps into things like trusts or your preferred method LLCs? Like, is it becoming more common practice because of, you know, bad experiences that they've had dealing with camps being passed down? Well, I've seen enough bad experiences that I tend to recommend anybody who has this kind of property and they they do want to have it passed down. Mm -hmm. I've also seen parents say, we're going to use it for our lifetime, but then we want it sold and the kids can't buy it. I'm going, really? (laughs) Um, I've seen that. And uh, so it's all over the place. But what the LLC does and a trust, the same thing, is it provides a mechanism for managing the property and managing the relationships. Yes. So, uh, so Tim, in regards to that too, is I'm just trying to think about like, you know, if we, we kind of have somebody that says, uh, I, I want to pass this property to future generations, they go through all this work and then they maybe change their mind, right? They say, you know what? Uh, we 10 years down the road, you know, sons in Arizona, daughters in uh, Alaska, there's no way they're coming to Maine and they're they're going to enjoy this camp. So they've done all these structures. They've done all this. Is it more difficult to then dispose, like to sell the camp then if it's in the name of a trust or name of an LLC? Does that complicate that whole transactional process at all? The, the mere fact of it being owned by an entity does not complicate it because it can just sell. What complicates it is the relative ownership of the members. Mm. So I described to you a, a process by which parents give away percentages. And I I had, and I'm having clients right now cross the 50% line, uh, which transfers control mm-hmm. to the younger generation. Now we have ways of managing that. Uh, we typically, when, when a senior generation crosses that ownership line, I mean, the, in this case, it is really the objective to give it away, to, right. to, right. to right. get it out of their estate. It's a yeah. highly appreciating asset. Right. You know, you just get it out of your estate, but I want to use it. That's what mm-hmm. they tell me. I want to use it. So when they cross the 50% line, you, they lose control and it becomes important. But as I said before, the goal is to try to change, uh, I mean, to get this out of your estate while still maintaining the right to use it. So we put the parents in a lease where they actually lease the property. Hmm. And, and what they're paying for rent is generally at least at least the annual operating expenses as a rent. Hmm. And if they rent it for more, then you're you're funding a reserve for capital expenses expenses and maintenance. Um, and then you have parents. So I've got some parents who are now in their late 60s. We're putting them in a lease that has an initial five-year term with a right to renew for three five-year periods. So we've got it out there long <laughs> enough. But the idea that the parents are renting it is to support the fact that they have, in fact, given it away. Hmm. The IRS can't come back and try to grab it and say, you never gave it away. Right. So, Tim, I want to ask about, we've asked about the the what and the why and the how and a lot of that, but maybe the the thing we haven't really touched on is when, because it feels like what's happening right now is people then they start addressing their state planning is is this whole, now I'm going to go create an LLC trust structure, something along those lines to then give it away. 
does it, it, it maybe from a best practice, would it make more sense to maybe just have this structure be up front when we do buy the, you know, we, you know, we're buying this camp. We think this is something we're going to love for a period of time. Just yeah. go ahead and uh, put that into that structure at that point. Yeah. Anytime I have clients that are buying that kind of a property, I recommend they put it in an LLC right away. And if they don't want to give anything away, they just keep it in the LLC and, and, so it's for management. I mean, they, they can get old and, you know, you need to have people be able to take over this and not have it run through probate and the like. So, But this would allow for, hey, this LLC owns this asset. Well, if we maybe we go out of this camp and we've relocated to North mm-hmm. Carolina and we buy a camp there because mm-hmm. it's closer to the grandkids or something, we could essentially just swap out assets into this LLC as we're kind of going, right? Does, would it, could it only own one piece yeah, of they, asset? And whether they want to have a, in that scenario, a South Carolina LLC or a Maine LLC, right. yes. those yep. are kind of the details we think about. The other thing we need to think about is, is there a mortgage? Because mm-hmm. you can't just have an LLC because it can trigger... First of all, it can boot you out of the secondary market in the cheapest mortgages. And, uh, but revocable trusts work there in that instance because that won't kick you out of the secondary market in the cheapest mortgages. And then at some point in the future, you may transfer the property from the revocable trust to an LLC of which the revocable trusts, you know, own the LLC. So it's, there's all kind, it depends on the circumstances. So. Are there any things to think about from like a tax perspective from buying things in an LLC versus a revocable trust? Are there any issues that come up there? Well, so an LLC, if it has more than one member, is a partnership. Mm-hmm. And if you have a lease, you know, you're collecting rent. Right. So, but, you know, it's a simple, relatively simple if you're renting it among yourselves and you're just paying the rent's just paying the expenses, it really isn't a tax issue as if you're renting to third parties. Mm-hmm. Revocable trusts are just, you know, they're ignored. They're, they're it's like for, for tax law, they're ignored. Okay. And if it's a single member LLC, same thing. It's just ignored. It doesn't exist um, for tax purposes. But if you have two members, you've got a partnership and you may have to find out, you may be filing a tax return and you get a K-1 that says your share of the income and expenses is this, and it's usually minuscule because um, nobody's making any money on this. Right. So, Tim, I, I think I want to make the point here is, you know, we, we've kind of asked about like scenarios and, you know, different things. It Obviously, what, you, what you've just highlighted is just the fact of just coming and sitting down with somebody like yourself and saying, hey, this is what I have. This is where I'm going with it. And you asking some really good questions of, you know, what about legacy concerns? What are you thinking about? Is this a permanent place you want to be at? Are you going to move from place to place? All those things are really kind of factor into your advice is to say, you know, hey, based on this, this is why this structure would make the more sense or this is why it's something else or don't do anything maybe is is the option as well. Doing nothing is always an option. (laughs) Yeah. But it's so it's completely fact based. You know, who are who who are the people in front of me and what are mm-hmm. they like and what are their family like and do they care about, you know, I've had people say, I don't want that child over there to get a dime. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to factor that in and, you know, protect their other children from, you know, the person over there who's gonna make mischief. Sure. So it's all you know, everyone's different. Every situation's different. 
which is, I think, from an advice perspective, you know, as an as advice practitioners, all of us on this uh, recording today, it's like, well, that's what you've got to do, right? Is you just sit down, the really good ones ask really good questions, really do a lot of investigation, do discovery, try to figure out all the pieces to then say, let's put this all together to make the best solution we think is customized to you. So yeah. obviously, you know, we have obviously experience with you already, Tim, in lots of different ways, but uh, we see, and that's why we wanted you to have uh, to come on the show today and really explain it. Cause I think you did a phenomenal job there. Thank you. So Tim, we have reached uh, the final question of this podcast episode. <laughs> it's a question that we yeah. ask every single one of our guests, regardless of the topic of conversation. As you know, the name of our show is Retirement Success in Maine Podcast. So we mm-hmm. like to ask, and I want to ask you, what is your personal definition of retirement success? And then kind of looking ahead to your own retirement, sort of what will make that, in your eyes, a successful experience for you? So for others and myself, I think it's the same thing. My view is that it's, you know, you're financially comfortable um, and you have the means to do what you would like to do and spend time with your family and also have a family that's as intact as it can be. Yeah. Um, and because that doesn't uh, always happen, but you know, good planning and good communication, it does. So that to me is retirement success where, you know, the parents are, you know, stopping by and giving, you know, ridiculous gifts to the grandchildren <laughs> and taking them skiing and doing all that stuff. That's the kind of stuff I see. That's awesome. I like. That's great. Well, as Ben said, thanks so much for coming on the show, Tim. I think he did a great job. I think it's going to be really useful for a lot of people um, who have these legacy properties to kind of have a starting off point to think about some things. So thanks yeah. again. You're welcome. All right. Take care. Take care. Take care. Well, thanks again to Tim Benoit for joining us today. Um, I think it was a really valuable conversation that a lot of people will find really useful, really interesting, and, you know, maybe spark some, some thoughts about how they can start planning for their properties that they want to pass on. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we always do at the end of the show, we do a little wrap up of things that we found interesting, our takeaways. Um, so Curtis, do you want to start with what you took away? Yeah. You know, I think overall the episode in general was super informative. I'll lead with that. Um, But a piece that really stuck out to me um, was when Tim was talking about, um, you know, he sees parents that start gifting, you know, portions of the of the camp uh, to their kids. And he he brought up the point of once you hit that 50 percent line or pass the 50 percent line, because then, you know, you're at a point where the kids have control of the property at that point. And, you know, I'll I'll speak kind of in my own situation here. My father has a camp and I, you know, if this were to happen there, you know, my dad's only 60 years old. But if we all got by the right. the the 50% mark, in theory, it could go bad if, you know, me and my brothers decide to say, hey, dad, surprise, we're selling the camp. So I thought it was really cool that he brought up the idea of the the parents renting, you know, and signing a lease agreement with the with the kids so they can continue to use their property for the next 30, 40 years, even though they may not you know, have full control of it. So I thought that was a really interesting and super informative, you know, piece that I think people can take away. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's helpful to hear from Tim some of the different ways that they can get around some of these different 
possible problems of putting it into an LLC and having, you know, ownership then given away. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I found that very interesting. What about you, Ben? Yeah, I, I think the communication um, part is mm-hmm. is pretty valuable. And, in you know, obviously, we've, we've had an episode with Amy K. Hutchins about the kind of the power of communication and how to have some of these hard conversations. So mm-hmm. maybe kind of tandeming these two episodes together, if you're kind of saying, hey, I want to be talking about my camp and what we want to do. Because again, from I think uh, when we when we sit down with our clients, you know, the the visual in their head is the kids swimming in the water and the fire pit and the bonfire and the s'mores and in the friends playing cards on the deck and, you know, the nice kind of summer air, all of that, right. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah. it's very romantic and you go, well, well, yeah, why wouldn't anybody love this? But in reality, things always can be different. Right. And, mm-hmm. and right. kind of this value of, Hey, I'm communicating. If I communicate that to my kids or to who I'm going to give this to, Maybe they don't share that same dream. Maybe what they see when they look at it is being there every weekend to maintain a property where I already have my house. Maybe it's I have to travel 50 minutes to get to that camp and that's two hours round trip and I got kids that you know, can't sit still for 50 minutes each way. And that seems like a lot of work. You, you, we all can visualize things differently yeah. in the story that we have in our heads. And I know Amy Kay at that point is like a story in my head is, <laughs> well, a story in your head might not be the story in their head. And, and for that reason, maybe that that's why they don't want to have that camp. Yeah. So getting to that point of maybe there's one child that does one child that doesn't. And if you knew that, why go through all the work, uh, before, right. then figure it out and have to undo it and redo it again, which is going to, there's going to be expense related to that. So all of those things, I think if we have a little bit more communication going on with, with what we want, mm-hmm. you're more up to get it. And and I think that was a pretty valuable lesson from Tim today. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And that seems to be a thread through a lot of our conversations is the importance of communication. And that was, again, just highlighted here. So what I found really interesting was using the structure of an LLC for property planning. Mm -hmm. I never really thought of that, right? So normally the default is a trust. And I just found it really interesting and useful. The idea that Tim brought of putting these properties into an LLC, gifting away ownership is just a really cool way of doing it. And that's one of the reasons why we had Tim on here today, right? So not only does he do estate planning, he also does a lot of work with businesses. So that business side and the LLC side really kind of marry well to give some more unique different ideas on about how to plan to, to have these legacy properties remain in families. So. Yeah. Um, Thanks again to everyone for listening today. Thanks to Tim again and Perkins Thompson. So we'll have some links at the bottom of the blog about Tim and about Perkins Thompson for everyone to check out. Um, The blog is blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash episode 35. So thanks again for joining us, everyone. We will hope to talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. 
Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.